Well, before we really get started here this morning, I want to ask you to do something, if I can. I want to ask you to engage both your mind and your heart uh, to the Word of God that we're going to uh, consider together here this morning. I suppose I'm using that word engage because it's been on my mind lately. Uh, Some of you know that Don and I's oldest grandson recently got engaged. Uh, That was an answer to prayer, actually. Uh, And we've been rejoicing and very grateful that uh, Michael is engaged to a precious young lady. And uh, like I said, that's been on my mind. I could have used other words for for this, but uh, uh, the word engage came to my mind, so I thought I would just use that word. I would like for you to engage, if you would, your mind and your heart uh, to the word of God that we're going to consider together here this morning. Uh, that word engage, uh, you know, it's kind of akin a little bit to the word espouse or, uh, that we find in the New Testament when we consider that Mary, for instance, was espoused to be married to Joseph. We read about that in the New Testament. Uh, espousal was a little bit different back in those days than engage is today. Uh, espousal was quite a commitment back then. It was almost marriage, as a matter of fact. Uh, it was a real, real commitment. And and that's the kind of commitment I'm actually asking you to make when I use the word engage this morning, uh, if I can. I'm asking you to really make a commitment to engage your heart and your mind to the Word of God that we're going to consider together here this morning. Now, to do that, of course, necessitates something, doesn't it? For you to engage your heart and mind to one thing necessitates disengaging your heart and mind from everything else. And that's where the difficulty comes in, isn't it? That's where it gets difficult. Because there's lots of distractions. And there's a lot of things that we're interested in. And sadly, I found, even oftentimes in my own heart and life, to my own shame and disgrace, there have been times when some other things have interested me more in God's Word. 
I'm just being honest. How about you? Have you found that to be true in your life? Shameful, isn't it? Shameful that any of us as God's children could ever point to a time in our lives as God's children that anything would ever interest us more than the Word of God. But sadly, it happens. But for just these next several minutes, or however long the Lord would have us spend our time together this morning, let's pray that God would enable us to engage our heart and our mind to the Word of God that He would have us consider. Can we do that? I pray that we can. I hope that we can. That we can put aside all these other interests, everything else that we maybe were planning for the rest of the day or next week and concentrate upon God's Word. Because I believe God has put something upon my heart to bring before you that's very important. Very important. Important enough that we need to give our attention to it. Our full attention. And so with that said, I would ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews chapter 10. God's Word, as we find it in the letter to the book of Hebrews, the letter is recorded in the book of Hebrews, the 10th chapter. And it is the Word of God. It's not the Apostle Paul's word or anybody else's. It's God's word. It's God-breathed. It's inspired. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's given to a human author by the Spirit of God, recorded precisely as God would have it to have been recorded. And we have it in His Word. The Scriptures. We're going to look at chapter 10 of Hebrews. I'm going to begin reading at verse 19. I'm going to read down through verse 25. If you would, look with me. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, 
that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Or rather, let us hold fast, excuse me, verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Well, I would speak to you this morning on what I've entitled on getting a good grip on it. Getting a good grip on it. Before we go further, why don't we pause again and go to the Lord Ask God if he would just really get a grip on our attention. Such a grip on our attention that we'll be able to focus for this next little while on what he has to say, okay? Let's pray. Oh, Father, how unworthy we are And how guilty we are, Lord, so often of letting so many other things take precedent over that which is so much more important. Forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. Oh, Lord, just... Arrest our hearts and arrest our thoughts, the very thoughts of our heart. Embrace them in your grace and your mercy and your great love. Draw us close to yourself, Lord, and speak to us this morning. Accomplish your purpose in our lives. Glorify your name in each of our hearts and lives. We commit this time to you. Trust your will be done. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was thinking, thinking about this passage of Scripture. The Lord's had it on my heart now for about three weeks. And I've just been thinking about it. I've been meditating on it. It just keeps coming to my mind. keeps coming to my mind. I haven't been able to get away from it. And I keep hearing, keep hearing this one verse, verse 23. Let us hold fast. Let us hold fast to the profession of our faith.
We're thinking about those words, let us hold fast. My mind went back several years when I was thinking about this. Even past my childhood, my mind went back to my dad's childhood. As a matter of fact, I was sitting right in there at the table where the ladies were sitting this morning with one of the grandchildren. I remember which one now, and I was telling them about this. My dad was a country boy, and uh, came time for him to go to high school. That little one-room country school that he went to, that his dad went to, and that I went to, couldn't go to high school there, so he had to go to town to go to high school. Well, on Saturdays, he continued to go to town. He started working for the local blacksmith on Saturdays. Now, this local blacksmith was not your typical blacksmith. He wasn't a big, burly, muscular blacksmith that you think of. You know, when you think of the blacksmith in the blacksmith shop, you know, he was a little bitty, skinny, dried-up guy, you know. Uh, but he, he had a blacksmith shop. His name was Mr. Dirks. And my dad went to work for him. And, uh, and, and what my dad's, one of my dad's primary responsibilities was to help him hold a horse still for Mr. Dirks to shoe him. And the particular horse that we're talking about was the unruly horse, the horse that didn't want to be shooed. And, uh, and of course, my dad was, wasn't, even, wasn't any bigger than Mr. Dirks. And so Mr. Dirks would have my dad hold the horse while he shoot him. And my dad would do that. And he'd do that by grabbing that horse by the upper lip with one hand and twisting that lip. And then he'd grab that horse by the ear with the other hand and he'd grip it with his teeth. And he'd hold that ear with his teeth and he'd grip that lip and he'd twist it. And I can remember my dad telling me that horse may be unruly, but he'd stand there and he'd quiver. And you think, well, why would he do that? Well, you get somebody to get a hold of your upper lip and twist it. You stand there and quiver too. And Mr. Dirks would shoot that horse. Well, my dad grew up, had a family of his own. I came along. And my dad began to shoe horses himself. Not only his own horses, but he'd shoe other people's horses as well. And you know the kind of horses he would shoe for other people? The kind they couldn't shoe for themselves. The unruly kind. And you'll never guess who had to help him. Yeah, it was me. And he'd expect me to hold those unruly horses while he shoot them. 
Yep, same way. And I can almost hear my dad today saying, Son, <clears throat> get a good grip on it. Get a good grip on it. Get a good grip on it. Because I, I can't do what I need to do unless you hold him tight. You've got to get a good grip on him. And I really thought about that. When the apostle wrote these words here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, saying, hold fast to your profession of faith. He was in reference to that living by faith that we must do and that we can't do that unless we're holding fast to what that faith is all about and what it means and what it's in. And so when the apostle says there in verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith, He's saying, get a good grip on your profession of faith. Or as the ESV says, on your confession of faith. Or your confession of hope. Well, much can be said, or should be said even, about verses 19 through 22. But that'll have to wait till another time. There's a lot of good things there in those verses. <laughs> hate to leave them. But the Lord has verse 23 on my heart this morning. And He'd have our attention drawn to this one particular verse and consider just why it is that this exhortation that we find here is so very, very important to each one of us. It is so very important that we hold fast to the profession of our faith that the Lord Himself, if you'll notice here, has promised to make sure that we do just that. Did you notice that? Look at the last part of that verse. After saying, let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering, in parentheses it says, for He is faithful that promised. He knows how weak we are. He knows how apt we are to not hold fast to the profession of our faith. So He adds here, the Lord's faithful that promised. Aren't you glad that we have verses in the Scripture like Philippians chapter 1, verse 6? For there the Apostle Paul says we be... Confident in this very thing that He hath begun a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. He who began the good work is going to perfect it. He's going to perform it. He's going to complete what He began. How thankful we are for that. Or verses like what we find back here in 2 Timothy. You might want to turn and look at this one with me. Because this is very closely akin to what we find in our text here this morning. Back in 2 Timothy 
chapter 2 and verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. Paul's writing to Timothy here, and he says in verse 13 of the second chapter of 2 Timothy, he says, If we believe not, or if we're unbelieving, yet He abides faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. What He's promised to do, He will do. Even if we are unbelieving, even if we're not as faithful as we ought to be, He is. And He will be. Because He cannot deny Himself. Oh, we will. Rest assured, we're going to to be unfaithful at times and we're going to be unbelieving, but not Him. Not our Lord. He abides faithful. He abides faithful. Well, just what does the apostle really mean by the profession of our faith or the confession of our hope? Well, I gave some thought to this. And based upon my understanding of uh, my study of the profession of our faith, Uh, I came to this conclusion. The profession of our faith is the outward expression of of our hope of eternal life. It's the outward expression of our hope of eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ, who He is and what He's done to secure our salvation from sin both its guilt and its penalty, and then making us acceptable to God by His own righteousness, seeing as how we don't have any of our own. That's what the profession of our faith is. Our hope of eternal life based upon our faith in Christ, who He is, what He's done to save us. To save us and make us acceptable in the eyes of God. Well, in speaking about this particular verse, Mr. Spurgeon said this. He said, as, a, as pardoned men upon whom there is no sin, He bids us exercise the freedom of near access to God. If you look at verses 19 and following, that's exactly what what He's doing here. As pardoned men upon whom there is no sin, He bids us exercise the freedom of near access to God who has accepted us in Christ. Then he tells us that since we are put in such a blessed position, a position which is altogether unique, it becomes us to hold fast to what we've received. Since the glorious gospel has done so much for us, let us never quit it or or forsake it. Since, Since it has brought us into a condition which angels might envy, let us never think of leaving it. 
Let us not dream of giving up that divine principle which has wrought us such blessedness. But let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. And then a little bit later, Spurgeon went on to say, Never, never was there a time in which this was more needful. My What would Spurgeon think today? What would he think today? That exhortation, let us hold fast, Spurgeon said, might well be written on the cover of every Christian's Bible. Think about it. That expression, let us hold fast, the profession of our faith might well be written on the cover of every Christian's Bible. He said, we live in such a chainful age that we need all to be exhorted, to be rooted and grounded, confirmed and established in the truth. And how true that is. And if that expression there, let us hold fast the profession of our faith, ought to be written on the cover of every Christian's Bible. Let me add to what Spurgeon said there by saying, it needs to then be kept in constant view. It needs to be kept constantly before our eyes at all times, where we never lose sight of it. Because I know what I'm like. I'll forget. I'll forget if I don't constantly have it before me. Oh, you see, faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is an absolute essential. It's an absolute essential without which we are without hope. As Paul said back here in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, he said that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There was a time when that was true of me. And there was a time when that was true of you. When you were without hope, without Christ, without God. And if you don't have faith, that's true of you now. Faith is an absolute essential for you without hope. A little bit later there, or a little bit earlier there in Ephesians, that very familiar verse tells us, for by grace are you saved through faith. Saved through faith. 
And then we're to live by faith, aren't we? Not only are we saved by faith, we're to live, to live by faith. The Apostle Paul quoted from the book of Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk. With the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, said the just shall live by faith, by his faith. The just shall live by his faith. Three times Paul quoted. In three separate letters that he wrote, he quoted from the prophet Habakkuk. He did so in Romans chapter 1 verse 17. He said, the just shall live by faith. He said it again in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11. The just shall live by faith. He said it again in Hebrews chapter 10. Right here where we are uh, this morning in verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. We live by faith. Oh, that great verse. That great verse in Galatians 2.20 where Paul talks about being crucified with Christ. Crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, he said, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I live by the faith of the Son of God. We live by faith. We live by faith. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul told those Corinthian believers, we walk by faith, not by sight. Natural man walks by sight. In other words, he makes his way through life depending upon what he can see. Or by his other, other, other physical senses, other four senses. Seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling. That's what he depends upon. But, but the Christian doesn't depend upon that for his living, does he? No, he walks by faith. Living all of one's life. By confident trust in the Lord. Oh, I never tire. I never never tire of reflecting upon what Solomon said in Proverbs 3. Those two verses that I constantly tell my grandchildren. Where Solomon says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. Your own understanding depends upon what? Sight. Physical sense. The old nature. The old man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And He'll direct your path. Now 
has saving faith. Saving faith, the faith that we're talking about here this morning, according to Ephesians 2.8, is initially a gift from God, a gift of God. Isn't that what it says? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Saving faith is initially the gift of God. In regeneration, and from this point on, according to Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. From that point on, it's initially the gift of God in regeneration. And from that point on, faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And it's clear from the context of Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. Let's go ahead and turn there. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 10. Let's see the context. It's clear from the context of Romans chapter 10 and that verse 17 where it says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's clear from the context that Paul is talking about the hearing of the preaching of God's Word by those whom He has called to proclaim it in the assembly of the saints. Did you ever notice that? Did you ever notice that that's the context of that? Verse 17. Look with me. Beginning with verse 14. How then shall they call on Him of whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report, or who hath believed the hearing, or who hath believed the hearing of our preaching, literally. The preaching of God's Word. The preaching of God's Word. And so Paul, the Apostle, as he continues to write in the 10th chapter of Hebrews, he'll go on to say in verse 24 and 25, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Hmm. You know, this matter of assembling ourselves together 
on the Lord's Day. Something that doesn't seem to be too very important to a lot of professing Christians today. A lot of other things to do on Sunday, isn't there? The world provides a lot of things for us to do on Sunday. It didn't used to be that way so much. Oh, it is today. It sure is today. So the assembling together of God's people on the Lord's Day to worship the Lord, to hear God's Word, and seem to be very important to a lot of professing Christians. But John Calvin thought it was very important. He said, forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, he said, it's the doorway to apostasy. The doorway to apostasy. You know what apostasy is? Apostasy is the abandonment of one's profession. And in the context of what we're talking about here, apostasy would be the abandonment of one's profession of faith. Proving it to not be real in the first place. Oh, there are some great and grave dangers awaiting those who forsake the assembling of themselves together, as the apostle speaks of it here. You see, the word from which we get assembling ourselves together it means a lot more than just coming together for fellowship. It means that. But it means a lot more than that. The words from which we get this, it means coming together for the express purpose of worshiping God based upon the hearing of God's Word. That's the literal meaning behind it. The assembling together. The assembling of ourselves together. It literally means coming together for the express purpose of worshiping God based upon the hearing of God's Word. That's what it means. That was the case in the Old Testament in the synagogue. And that was the case in the New Testament for the early church. And it should be true for believers today. Let me mention just one great danger this morning, if I can, of forsaking this great privilege that God has given us of assembling ourselves together to worship 
around the preaching of God's Word. Paul warns of it back in his letter to the church at Rome. If you want to turn there with me, the book of Romans, the letter to the church at Rome, chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And verse 2, first part of verse 2. A great danger. Where Paul says in verse 2 of Romans 12, And be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to this world. Oh, if, if one who professes to be a believer forsakes the assembling together of God's people to worship God based upon the preaching of God's Word and persists in that, he'll find himself perhaps being conformed to the world. and the things of the world. Oh, listen, dear friend, listen to what John wrote back in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. John said, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world, the whole world, lies in wickedness. Now that's King James. Okay. The whole world lies in wickedness. If you get the new King James, what you're reading says, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Lies under the sway of the wicked one. If you've got the ESV, you're reading the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You want to be conformed to the world? You want to be participating in the things of the world? You want to come under the sway of wickedness? Of the wicked one himself? You want to be under the power and the dominion of the evil one? You forsake the assembling together of God's people consistently and persistently? You'll find yourself being conformed to the world. And that's where you'll find yourself. This world is under the dominion of Satan, the evil one. This world is a very subtle 
and seductive siren. Very tempting. Very enticing. Has an awful lot to offer that the flesh likes. Know that the flesh loves. Oh yes, the flesh loves it. And so John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, he said, as he wrote, Dear children, he said, Love not the world. Love not the world. That you be on your guard. You hold fast to the profession of your faith, dear friend, because your old man loves the world. Make no mistake about it. Always has and always will. The old man, the flesh, loves the world. Inclines to the things of the world. Does not resist the world. Longs for the, for the world. Lusts after the world. Delights in the things of the world. John says, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. For if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Strong words. Strong words. James wrote in James 4, James chapter 4 and verse 4, friendship with the world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Oh. Enmity with God. Isn't it something? Here we are. Here we are, individuals who've been justified, justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote in Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to have peace with God? There was a time when we didn't. There was a time when we didn't. Our old man was at enmity with God. Hated God. Wanted nothing to do with God. Oh, but because of what Christ did for us. Peace was established. Peace was established. And then in verse 10 of Romans 5, Paul says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled, reconciled to God by the death of His Son, Why would we want to be a friend with the world and have enmity renewed between us and God? 
that's what friendship with the world does. How foolish. How foolish. And it all starts with forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Where we can come and worship God based upon hearing the preaching of His Word. The Lord creates faith. Creates faith in our heart, in our soul, renews faith, strengthens faith, builds faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Remember when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. What did the Lord Jesus do? He taught them. What was he teaching them? The Word of God. The Word of God. What did that do? Increase their faith. Increase their faith. That's what we need, folks. And then we need to hold fast. Hold fast what he gives us. Oh, sometime back, a few years ago, I was sitting at my desk. I was thinking about these very things. How the world hammers against us. I took up my pen and I wrote these words. The prevailing winds of this world's ways are a constant force which tends to bend one away from God in the narrow way He has set before us. It is only when God breathes into the soul with the power of His Spirit, the stabilizing power of His Word, that one can faithfully press on against the gale force winds of worldly ways. And that's it. That's it. We got to hear God's word. Got to hear God's word. Oh, so brethren, hold fast. Hold fast to the profession of your faith without wavering, knowing that He's faithful, that promised. Hold fast. Hold fast. Be where you can hear the word. Don't miss any opportunity that God gives you to hear his word proclaimed. Yes, you can benefit from sitting down in your home and reading God's Word. Certainly you can. God will bless that. You can benefit from sitting down with a friend or with your family 
opening up God's Word, and you can you can grow and you can benefit from that. But nothing replaces sitting under the God-anointed preaching of God's Word by that one that God has called and set apart for the express purpose of proclaiming His Word. That's why He calls men to do it. To equip the saints. To build up the saints in faith. Don't miss an opportunity. Don't let this world drag you away from any opportunity God gives you to hear the Word of God proclaimed or taught. We're living in perilous times. We need it. We desperately need God's Word. God help us. May we, by the grace of God and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, get a good grip on the profession of our faith. As the Apostle exhorts us to, God help us. God help us. Let's pray.